welcome to the FE Research Podcast with Joe and Alistair, a podcast that aims to shine a light on the practitioner inquiry, scholarship and research being carried out within further education. These are people who are passionate about it, passionate enough to actually do something about it and form a movement. And it's where movements come about, I think, that change happens. Hello and welcome to the FE Research Podcast. My name is Joe Fletcher-Saxon and my partner in crime is... It's Alistair Smith. Hello, Joe. Hello, Alistair. How are you? I'm really good, thank you. How about yourself? Yeah, not bad, thanks. So um, today we've got one of our, what we're calling our long listens. We're going to record a long listen. Um, So we've got different podcasts going on. We've got our seven-minute pod where people share seven things in seven minutes. We have our sort of standard uh, podcast. We're thinking about doing some walking ones, you know, if we're ever allowed out again. Um, But we're also doing what we call our long listens, a bit like the Guardian long read. And we've targeted what we believe are the heavyweights, haven't we? (laughs) That's the plan. It's it's the important thinkers in the sector at the moment, isn't it? And the key minds. The others we've um, spoken to are David Powell, Lou Mycroft, hers is due out in the next few days. Uh, Dr. Catherine Manning from the ETF we had. We're trying to chase Sam Jones. We'll get her eventually. And then our guest today. So welcome, Dr. Gary Husband. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. I'm not quite sure I'm going to live up to the accolade of, um, of, of big thinker, but we'll, we'll see. We'll see what happens. <laughs> we'll see. So I'm going to read out a, a little bit about you so that um, anybody who doesn't know you, you know, can get to know you. So uh, Gary Husband is a lecturer in professional education at the University of Stirling. He's newly appointed also as a visiting professor at the University of Sunderland. He's president of the ARPCE, and that is the Association for Research in Post-Compulsory Education. He's a college governor at New Battle Abbey College and chair of directors of the Duncan McKinnon Music and Arts Trust. However, this is what Gary does, not who he is. And if anybody follows him on Twitter, actually, they'll perhaps see um, some more things about who he is. Um, He's a father, husband, musician, a writer who who lives on the Scottish borders, he enjoys working with wood, which you might have seen on Twitter, actually. I think he's got an impressive log pile, actually. I remember seeing that. <laughs> and uh, he likes exploring the mountains, playing in a band, spending time with his family. Some people might have actually seen his little girl, Isla, do a Brewed F.E. Um, film with, with Gary. They talked about leadership. She was very impressive. Uh, <laughs> and uh, he likes looking uh, for adventures. Also... You might have seen on Twitter, he likes skipping. He's been skipping recently. Is that right? I have. Yeah. I have. It's, a, it's a newfound joy. The uh, pressures of the day get too much. I skip to the school and back with my daughter. It's brilliant. Excellent. Okay. <laughs> so welcome. And thank you so much for being here. And I am going to hand over to Alistair for the first set of questions. Okay, right, Gary. Well, we'll, we'll get straight in. Right, I'm going to keep it fairly easy because uh, Lou told us off for going straight in with the with the heavyweight stuff and straight in at the beginning. <laughs> first of all, it's really... told off by Lou. <laughs> <laughs> um, first off, really, just tell us a little bit about yourself and your kind of roles and and um, what that what that really entails. Okay, um, so a, a little bit of history, some context might be useful. Um, so I, when I left school, um, I did did particularly badly in my A-levels, which is something I'm really quite proud of now. And, um, and it's been enormously helpful because I ended up having to piece together um, various different career paths, which have, which have led me to where I am, really, which is in, entirely by accident, but also um, lovely and serendipitous. But um, So I had a period of time as a, as a professional musician when I, when I left school, um, in the days where you could get a record deal. And um, people like John Peel were were huge sort of advocates um, for smaller bands. So I had a really really lovely few years doing that. But as these things do, the record industry um, fell to bits, and um, we had to find work. And uh, I went into work in a sort of residential um, uh, children's home, really, for want of want of a better word. But the, these places were where really troubled young people would go. 
um, and we used outdoor pursuits to try and um, support young people uh, back back into a um, I don't know a, a more purposeful um, way of looking at life really. Uh, and from that, I ended up doing um, a couple of sort of qualifications in outdoor ed, and then um, worked as a, a mountain bike instructor for for a couple of years in North Wales where I was living um, and through doing the mechanical side of that I got, got interested with a, a friend of mine who owned a garage and he said oh come and do a few days and that turned into a full-time job and I trained as a mechanic uh, in my 20s and uh, through going to the college as a slightly older student um, I naturally I got became friends with some of the lecturers and uh, they offered, as, as you know where this is going, they offered me a little bit of part-time teaching in the evening and the next thing you know, I'd quit, quit working in the garage and I had a full-time lecturer's job. And this is sort of where it sort of starts really because very proactively, the college I worked in um, insisted that all staff had to go through their PGCE. So off I went dutifully and uh, met some fantastic people who are still my friends now, the tutors who ran, ran that course. Uh, and I came out at the end of it um, knowing a little bit about teaching, but absolutely um, bemused as to what it is they'd done to me. Um, because I suddenly had this passion and interest for not just learning, I mean, I had that anyway, um, but for further education itself, the sector, what it did, how it placed itself in society, who accessed it. Um, and because I was a bit of an older student, Bangor University accepted me onto their master's program. Uh, and then I ended up going across and doing um, doing the doctorate, which I finished in 2015. Um, but in the process of doing that, trying to find a network, trying to find other people who are interested in these things, I got in touch with the then president of ARPCE, a, a, a wonderful um, chap, Professor Jeffrey Elliott, and just said, is anyone else interested in this sort of thing? And he came back, yes, we are, join us. Um, so before you know it, I was being whisked off to meetings in Oxford where I, where I really found my people, if you like. Um, got involved with uh, further education research. Um, and my career at this point, I was taking on leadership roles and, and what have you in college. Um, yeah, and then um, ARPC, I got involved with the conferences. And then as these things go, people move, people shift, things, things change. Uh, and bless them, they, they nominated me to be president of the association in 2018. So I've been sort of working on um, trying to do some developments in that area since then, which has been good. Um, but then through working at, so I moved over to the University of Stirling to, to get involved in doing some further education research. Um, ironically, you have to leave the sector in order to get funding to look at the sector, but there we go, it is what it is. Um, I've ended up sort of expanding my network, uh, working with lots of wonderful people and uh, meeting people like, um, well, like yourselves, obviously, but, you know, Professor Maggie Gregson in Sunderland, who, who's just worked so tirelessly on the programs there and has just given me the enormous honor of, of asking me to um, do some work with them and giving me that visiting professor position. So it kind of all strings together in this kind of loose, um, entirely unplanned um, career that I seem to find myself really enjoying and enormously privileged to be, be doing. Sorry, that was really rambling, but there you go. No, 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 it's really insightful. And um, I, I was kind of nodding away at the serendipitous kind of thing, especially when you kind of mentioned that, you know, you, you start a few hours teaching um, and before you know it, it, it all kind of unravels in front of you and, and you end up on the kind of roller coaster into a completely different way of being, really. Um, so that's... Yeah, yeah sure. That's nice. and, and all the experiences sort of come together, you know, that bit of teaching in the mountains with groups or mountain bikes and then working with the young people who had... You know, quite severe um you know challenging behavioral issues and then you know it all just seemed to come together in the fe fe workshop classroom and i, I found my space really. that you know that leads us perfectly onto the to the next kind of question i've got for you there really oh, yeah. gary which is sort of looking at um kind of with you supervising and working with uh, other students and, and researchers and things there i'm wondering if there's kind of any kinds of topics that are being explored at the moment or sort of emerging themes that you know that, that would tie things together like that or if there's anything that you're spotting trends with at the moment there is there is um so again you know really really privileged I'm in the position now i'm supervising um doctoral students um and I, most of my doctoral students have got a focus within within fe 
And one of the big themes that's come up the last couple of years is this idea of transition, um, moving from one space to another, one learning organization, qualification, framework, or whatever it might be. Um, and one of my um, recently graduated um, doctoral students, Dr. Julia Fotheringham, did this wonderful piece looking at the experiences of um, two plus two students who did half of their qualification in uh, further education and then the second half in a, in a HEI. Uh, and actually, this is a theme that I've seen as I'm examining um, doctoral um, candidates in other organizations, other universities, as, as we do. And this idea of transitions and this dual space, this being of um, a student in both, uh, both these sectors, but also in this one new emerging sort of post-compulsory sector that, that, that um, policy seems to be drifting towards, certainly within sort of Scotland and, and Wales, they're hinting at it. So yeah, there, there's, there's a current theme, I think. Well, that's, that's an, an interesting um, kind of theme that I don't know how much I've kind of been uh, paying attention to that one, but, but to hear that coming from you is quite good. Um, looking at that and, and thinking about research, uh, researchers and obviously supervising and, and going with that, what do you think needs to be in place to ensure that there's kind of good quality and impactful and purposeful research um, taking place? specifically in fe or yeah oh yeah specifically in fe sorry yeah uh, okay okay so uh, well i mean that's, that's i can answer my own question in some way because um the same things that you need to have rigorous and valid research coming out of out of people based in he you need that in fe as well so you you need to have individuals that have got an understanding of the principles of production of research and the generation of new knowledge. But also those individuals need to be supported to do that. And there needs to be the time, the, the infrastructure, I mean, that comes down to money ultimately, um, spent on, on enabling people to be able to have the space and time to develop that thinking and produce that work. You know, I'm absolutely firmly of the belief that there, is, there should be no difference in the quality of research produced by people working in FE institutions and those working in HE institutions. Just the difference is that at the moment, many HE institutions are entirely focused um, on production of research, whereas in FE, that's not, not a culture that's, that's been for many, many years. And I'm not saying there aren't places that don't, but generally speaking, it's not the focus. So I suppose a change and a shift in focus to be able to produce um, good research, you need to be able to have individuals that are supported to do it. Does that, does that answer the question? Yeah, absolutely. I'm watching Joe nodding away as well there, which is <laughs> fantastic. Now, this one's yeah. slightly, slightly kind of lighter-hearted here, really, Gary. Okay. And uh, I, was, I was struggling to sleep last night, and I was thinking about um, doing things like the podcast and meeting various people and going through groups. Um, I was thinking of myself almost like a, a, a womble, picking out all the, the great bits that I'm kind of coming across along the way. Ah. And uh, thought about the concept of wombling pedagogy and picking out the, the good bits. Um, I, I wonder kind of as you're looking at um, quite a lot of work from, from your kind of fantastic position there, if there's anything that you're kind of picking out or, or taking forward or picking up and carrying along sort of in, in your almost wombling quest as well. Ah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, as I'm strolling across the common. Um, yes, there is. I mean, uh, there's some really lovely new research coming through um, from some really, really interesting um, thinkers that are picking up um, picking up themes that, that haven't really been touched on before. And um, there's, there's recent work been done on trust. Um, Oh, and and I'm, this is terrible. Is it Christina Donovan? It is. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, sorry, Christina, if you're listening to this, I had a mind uh, blank there. Um, her work on trust is really, really important, I think, because it opens up these new discussions in new spaces. And I am now watching and waiting to see where that's going to go because it's not a space that I've thought in, and uh, I'm learning from the conversations that are happening there. So that's a really, really exciting development. Um, you've spoken to Lou. I mean, most things that Lou's involved with are um, very forward thinking, um, very well developed. Um, and Lou's ideas around the Bowerbird, um, that sort of thinking is really, really interesting. And again, I mean, I've been so privileged. I've written with Lou, and it's 
I learned so much from her. Uh, again, I'm sort of watching on the periphery and and seeing how these things develop and learning learning from colleagues like that. So yeah, I think I think off, off, on the hoof, that's probably the best answer I can give right now without going for greater thought. No, I like that. Um, it, it, but it's true, isn't it? You know, we pick up these great little gems as we go along and and incorporate them into our own thinking and, and influence mm. ourselves. Um, so with that one, <laughs> on to the next question, um, which is we quite often ask people, um, for anyone sort of starting out in practitioner research pathways, if you've got any recommended kind of top reads or um, kind of key thinking to, to get digging into? Um, yeah, yeah. So um, good reads. Well, I'll always recommend a solid um, basis of literature on research methods and methodology so a book that i've relied on quite heavily um, was qualitative research methods i think it was yin 2011 uh, and it's a great book because it's pitched just right uh, if you're thinking how do i go about doing x y or z uh, it's in there you know it's and, and there's plenty of books like that if you're into into quantitative research just get yourself a good set of textbooks uh, but also to go alongside that buddy up with an experienced researcher um, somebody that has 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 been doing this for a while um, can navigate the vagaries and the difficulties of, of pu pulling together a research project um, and can understand um, what it is you're trying to find out and then the appropriate methods and sort of philosophical theoretical perspective that will allow you to be able to analyze what you're seeing and answer the question you've got and that goes back to the idea you were talking about with um, you know rigorous and valid research um, you know there's no reason at all that practitioner research can't be entirely insightful rigorous valid useful um but where some of it fails, and I'm, I'm being very careful not to generalize here, where some of it fails is the individuals in some respects don't know what they don't know. Uh, and they're not given the time, the training, the investment. They're just, they know there's something they want to find out. And they're trying to find it. And actually, most of the time they get there. But what would make the journey that much easier is um, sort of a research mentor. And it doesn't matter where those individuals are, if they're in a part of the university or in a part of the college, and a good theoretical sound basis in, in research methodology. I think that would be my initial advice. And oh, another one, join a network, get involved with um, you know, the FE Research Network, get involved with ARPCE, come to conferences, speak to people. Um, and I can honestly say that there isn't a more friendly community than the people who are working and researching in further education without any bias at all. It's, I've, I've moved in other circles and this is the most friendly I've ever encountered. Yeah, I've, uh, I've experienced a lot of that as I've kind of come <laughs> into it as well. It's great. Um, and that kind of common theme as well of the, the supportive networks is quite a, a regular thing that we're hearing from people that we're talking to on the on the podcast. Um, so we spoke to um, David Powell and um, he got very animated um, on the video chat uh, when he decided he was going to have the de Department for Education in his office and everybody else and he was going to tell them um, lots of things. And, and it made me think about if you, uh, if you had the interesting position, Gary, of walking into a lift with the Education Secretary in a very short space of time, and you're going to try and grab his attention. Is that is there a topic that you'd perhaps bring to his attention right now? Oh, that's a good question, isn't it? If I was in the lift with the education secretary, um, I think I think it's a fairly obvious one that I would bring up. But actually, yeah. So I'll give this a bit of background. So I, I, I've been asked to write a paper. And I'm, I'm doing that with uh, Professor Ron Hill. And he wants to look at, we want to look at, I should say, he suggested it, but we're looking at this idea of what is post-compulsory education? Um, you know, why does it matter? Well, how is it framed? And I've started off this piece of writing by looking at, going back to, and I'm going to mention the B word, going back to, going back to the Brexit referendum. And there was, this, there was quite a big thing made about um, further education is where we're going to base our you know, ongoing development for skills training to reinvigorate our, our production, engineering, um, technology industries, and so on and so forth. You know, the whole sort of make Britain great again type thing. Yeah. And, and, and it's actually quite a laudable, I mean, I don't like to um, give away my politics in any way, but one of the few things I thought, yeah, you probably, if you're going to rely on any sector, 
um, to, to do what you think it's going to do. It's going to be FE. But I, what I would say to the education secretary is, it isn't going to do it if you keep mucking about with it. And it isn't going to do it if you don't fund it. And, and it isn't going to do it if you don't trust the people who work in it to get on with it and do what it is you need it to do. Clearly, we need a further education sector for many, many reasons. And I'm, I'm very quick to say that it's not just about getting jobs. But if you are going to have a sector that's going to be relied on for the development and support of, uh, of um, industry, manufacture, design, whatever it is, FE can do it, but it won't do it if you've got um, policy being written by people that have never even been in a college who think they understand what colleges do. In fact, they're ignoring half the FE sector in the first place. So my, 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 I think my bullet points to the education secretary would be trust the people who work in it, listen to what they've got to say, give them the appropriate amount of money and stop mucking about with it. I like that. It's really good and concise, actually. <laughs> that, that couldn't have been a better answer. I think that was uh, that was very good and, and uh, excellent on it. So on that note then, Joe, I'm going to hand over to you because I know you've got some further questions for Gary as well. But thank you for that, Gary. Over to you, Joe. Okay. So the, um, the question that... That's um, no problem. The question that David got really excited about, I'm going to ask you the same sort of thing, which is really about if we waved a magic wand now, and you were put in charge of the nation's FE research, what would be the first few things that you would do? <laughs> uh, and I've got a magic wand. Yeah, yeah. Right. I've got a magic wand. Okay, so um, these aren't in any particular order. They're just as they come to mind. Um, I would make space, and by space I mean time, for people who wanted to have a research element of their contracts um, to have that incorporated. Now that might be lecturing staff, ed educational staff. It might equally be um, support staff who are working in maintenance. It might be um, any member of staff who's working in the organization. That's another B I have in my bonnet, actually, is that 50% of the staff who work in further education are largely ignored. But anyway, we can come back to that. So I would make time and space for them and I would fund it. Um, second thing I would do would be to um, push for real partnerships, developmental partnerships between HEIs, universities and colleges. And when I say real partnerships, I mean equal partnerships so that you've not got universities doing research on FE or FE staff doing research on HE, you know, provision or whatever. They're actually working together because, I mean, I mentioned this before, there is this really long culture of, of research development in, in higher education. And one thing is our universities do do really well is research. Um, you know, I've been through several rigorous training programs of of, of, of for, for research development, as have many people who work in, in HE. There's a lot to be shared there. Um, and I think real partnerships where, I think Lou would call people fellow travelers. Uh, and you've got then two separate perspectives. You've got different skill sets. You've got different views, um, different insights. And I think you would develop some really, really good research there. So I think what have I talked about there? Funding, space, contractual changes, um, cultural changes and then also so partnerships but the other thing I'd add and this will be my last thing here is that not all research in FE has to be about pedagogy and teaching and learning uh, and I think that's where one of the problems with FE research and I'm going to get shouted at for saying this but I'll give some examples of the contrary is that it tends to be quite introspective and looking in um, looking at practice looking at teaching looking at students uh, and there's no reason why um, you know, particularly fantastic research can't be done that's based in FE. So I would encourage that. And the two examples I can give are two friends of mine who I used to work with in Edinburgh College, um, Dr. Ross Milligan, he got his doctorate doing it, um, did a project looking at the use of electric vehicles as, as basically pool cars for the organization. He just changed all the, all the college cars to electric cars. Uh, and Dr. Mike Jeffrey, who's, who works in Edinburgh College, he did his on... Um, I think it's the largest, most northern solar array in the UK. And it sits outside the college and runs one of the campuses. That's the sort of research that colleges could be brilliant at doing um, because the students can get involved, you know, and it would sit alongside it. So I think that might be 
where I would wave my magic wand in the first instance. Right. Thank you. Gosh, that's a big list. Um, I think uh, <laughs> <laughs> what I was going to say is in our little research community here at college, in the first year, our college chaplain was in the group. She studied a PhD. So it's absolutely open Perfect. to support staff. And our finance manager, he did his um, doctorate um, as part of our relationship with the higher, you know, HE institution we're linked to. Yeah. So yeah, we absolutely do encourage anybody mm. to consider it. But you're right, particularly the teachers, they tend to think about pedagogy and we do encourage them to consider subject, um, you know, something around, around their subject. But yeah, they tend to go for pedagogy mm. stuff. Right. Okay. Naturally. So, yeah. yeah. Um, I'm not saying don't do it either. It's brilliant work, but um, you know, there are other horizons that can be explored. Yeah, exactly. Um, now, as, a, as it often happens, you've already answered my next question, so I'm going to change it. Um, it was about how uh, people can be supported in the workplace, but you've told us. So do you, do you want to tell us a bit about ARPCE? Because in your magic wand, you didn't mention that that would be part of the setup, the ARPCE. Tell us about... Ha, no, I didn't, did I? <laughs> that was a that was a, a slip up. Yeah, and of course, ARPC would be central to it all. Uh, no, so what about ARPC? So it's been going for a long, long time. Um, it used to be called FERA, the Further Education Research Association. Um, and then a few years ago, it changed to ARPC to sort of incorporate um, partners working in, in higher education as well. There's a lot of interesting work obviously done there. So... We, as an organization, have been through a period of change. Um, we have some, some people retired and moved on uh, after many, many years of really, really um, wonderful service. Uh, and I got, got given the chair. So I took it as an opportunity to, to sort of develop and change a little bit. Um, and we were in the midst of doing that when a couple of, a couple of sort of fairly disastrous things happened, one of them being the global pandemic, which meant we had to cancel our conference. And as many people know, will know, that's kind of a highlight of the biannual ARPC calendar. And it was all at such short notice that it was impossible to try and rearrange to do it online. As try as we may, we couldn't shift it. And the only thing to do was to cancel it. So what that's done is it's given us a period um, to sort of sit back and think, well, what are we going to do? Uh, and we've developed a strategy whereby we're, we're going to look at, excuse me, at delivering uh, a series of seminars up and down the country with partner organizations. Um, and they will be hopefully based in FE colleges or, or similar. Um, and there'll be mini conferences, day conferences, for the locale, if you like. So you know, people won't have to travel too far to them. But the idea might be to do one in Scotland, one in the north of England, um, one, one in Wales, one in you know, central England, and one in the south of England, something like that. Uh, and do those over the period of 18 months, which will hopefully fill um, the gap that's been left with the conference there. But the, one of the other things we, we're looking at now is starting to um, look at how we might produce... Um, more literature beyond the the journal that's already produced. So many people will be familiar with the, with the the journal that ARPC produces that's edited by Jeffrey. Um, but we're also looking at uh, maybe looking at some developing. Um, this goes back to what I was saying before, actually, about um, materials that will support practitioner researchers. Um, you know, quick how-to guides, but properly written um, and put together and published. Uh, at affordable price points, you know, so it's all available, but written by people who are involved in further education research, uh, but based in um, the development of rigorous methodologies. Um, so really, it's about supporting um, the development of researchers in FE through production of some literature. So that was another way. But also the other thing we're looking at doing now as well is securing some funding to try and support um, research projects happening in in the FE sector. So it might be that we're able to grant um, small pots of money to people that might buy out some teaching time or buy out some time from their you know, um, daily duties if they're not, not just teaching, um, but also um, provide people with a, a mentor system as well. So you know, it might be a few thousand pounds to do some research, but also one of the members of ARPCE um, 
will be able to help the development and support of that. So that, that's a couple of things that we're looking at. And we've got some partner organizations that are, that are coming on board um, over the next 12 months or so, um, just in the process of, of, of those conversations, really. So that's, that's where we're heading. And then, of course, we've got the big conference planned for 2022, um, which we're going to have to have our big celebration event there instead of this year because we were going to celebrate 25 years of the journal uh, but instead we'll have to celebrate 27 years of the journal it's, it's probably worth adding that people can sign up quite easily can't they as members of arpc if people are listening yes yeah um our ten, <laughs> these things are always fraught with technological issues but yes the in theory you can sign up to become a member of arpc through the website um, we, I, I have to add, in, to be fair to people, there has been one or two technical problems with that the last couple of months that we've been trying to work through, but hopefully that's resolved now. So yeah, you can go onto the website, you can sign up as a member, um, and we have got a, a limit the amount of um, digital access rights we can give, but you should be able to get access to the journal via the website when you've signed up. Thank you very much. Lots of exciting plans there then yeah yeah and lots of exciting people involved in them as well so I, um i might be might be knocking on your doors to see if what, what support you can give for uh, venues and so on and so forth but oh, yeah. uh, let's see what shape the world looks in after after christmas shall we absolutely um you've talked a bit about relationships between universities and colleges mm. and then um, i was doing my sunset um program one of the things that really stands out is there's all this stuff going on but i would say 99 percent of say the teachers in this college would have no clue that this body of research is really happening they don't sadly may not have heard of arpc until i introduce mm. them to it or or lsrn or you know those organizations or, or sunset until the pointed at it really um so to me you know there's this there's this gap um, so the, the flow through of all this great knowledge doesn't reach the people that potentially would want to wish to engage with it. And then I start to wonder when universities are judged on impact, what kind of impact are they being judged on? If the body of knowledge they're producing doesn't truly impact on the, the end user, if you see what I mean. Mm, does that that's make a very, sense? It, it does. That? <laughs> It does. What do I think of that? That's the question, right? Okay, so I think, I think you've, you've raised two pertinent points there. Um, the first one is that, yes, you're right, there's a gap. There's always going to be a gap between intended impact and impact. Um, and the body of people, let's, let's go with the figure of 99%. Let's say 99% of people aren't aware of the research that's out there. Um, there's two ways of looking at that. One is, is yes, it's potentially the fault of the researchers themselves um, for limiting the outputs of where the research goes to things like journals and conferences, which traditionally people in FE don't tend to have access to. Um, but there is another issue that, that, that could be addressed here as well, is that the, let's focus on lecturers and lecturer training. Uh, I mean, I, my own doctorate was on, on initial teacher education for lecturers in, in FE. Um, and when you look at what happens on the many, many of the courses that people go on, they're not exposed to it. So it's kind of, they don't know what they don't know because they're not given an opportunity to, 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 to see that side of things. And I've got to be honest, I mean, I didn't see a journal article in relation to further education really uh, until I went on to do my master's at Bangor University. I did my entire um pgce and it was all based in book form literature and I, I dread to think i mean some of the stuff things like honey and mumford and things we've all we've all you know come a cropper there um sorry honey and mumford if you're <laughs> listening hopefully you're not <laughs> but anyway to the, back to the point there is a gap but also you've highlighted another point and um when you look at the sheer volume of research that's done on compulsory education, uh, it's impossible for people to work in compulsory ed and not see it or be exposed to it because um, it, they're normally at some point involved in a research um, project. They'll be approached by researchers because 
where they work is involved. You know, it's just the sheer volume of work that's being done. And when you look at it comparatively, there's not that many people in HEIs doing that much work on FE. Now, I'm not saying there's no research on FE. That's patently incorrect. Uh, and Jonathan Tummins did a fantastic job of, of correcting um, the uh, inspector on their um, presumption that there was no research on FE or just parroting what they'd heard elsewhere. There is, but there's just not as much of it. So when you start to look at exposure, um, you've, got, you've got issues there around, there's not that much to be exposed to, but what's there is good. The HEIs that are producing it are forced down this route of having to produce work for the REF, and you're not measured on REF unless it's published in a journal um, so, or, or in a book. Um, so that, that in itself is an issue. Uh, and then you've got lack of exposure from within FE itself. So I'm going to get my magic wand out again uh, and fix that and, and say, like, let's get these, all these people talking to each other. Yeah. Um, get HEIs better involved in exposure of research to people doing their uh, initial you know, teacher education. Because let's face it, it is largely universities are licensing these things. Uh, and, and let's fund more research and, and get more of it out there. Okay. All right. Um I'm glad to say then that here, um, our PGCE students definitely read journal articles <laughs> early on. Um, they do, obviously, they do a kind of action research type unit, any module yeah. A. But also, like last, in the last proper academic full year that we had, not the half one, um, we had them along to LSRN and FE Research Meet. So, yeah. That's good. So, whether that whether they carry that with them in fact one of our graduates actually thinking about it he's in the second year of his career and he's now leading research projects in his, the school he's working at so actually yeah so, so obviously see that, that there's an ex that's a really really good example of where really really good developments are being followed through and actually you made it sound easy i'm sure it's not that easy but it, it, it's not terribly difficult and i think if that approach was adopted wholesale uh, it might go some way to bridging that that identified gap yeah. uh, and again i'm not pointing fingers it's just it is what it is but there are um really good examples of ways it can be uh, mitigated yeah we've also just appointed um as an opportunity at sort of middle manager level a research mentor that's a new role as well it, it's, it's a full-time teacher who's got some remission to do that but again yeah it's an, an attempt to you know bridge those gaps so yeah, yeah and that's really common that is I don't, I, you know, I don't know i don't i don't think it's very common at all and i think that's one of the issues you know i mean i, I was waving my magic wand around earlier and it sounds to me that you are doing many of the things um that i wanted to say to the education secretary in the lift um <laughs> and it'd be interesting to hear at some point how it is you're going about doing that because that could inform some of the work that we want to do in arpce and support other organizations in being able to see ways that they can take on board these developments that might not be you know onerously expensive or, or require yeah. additional funding to do it well yeah i mean i feel like i've got a short window to, to kind of prove it works really uh, no pressure <laughs> <laughs> um my next question really is about what i call in part grassroots stuff so what do you think the impact is of of some of the things like research meets and breweds, which come from the side, they're not institutional, they are individuals yep. driving these opportunities for people to talk about research. And then you've got things like the, the funded stuff, it's AP Connect, um, Sunset programs, and then you've got people like LSRN, you know, just there as a kind of voluntary organization. So all that's in the landscape in that big. Mm -hmm of um fe research what impact do you think some of those are having uh i like i like the grassroots term um and and, and have, have i got time to wax lyrical for a minute or two here yeah yeah okay great so um i mentioned before there that i'm involved in the music scene and the um the duncan mckinnon music and arts trust actually runs a venue that's the primary function of it, the, the Mac Art Centre in, in Gala Shields. Um, and it's, it's, you could describe it as a grassroots venue. Uh, as somebody who's been a musician and, and been in a band for oh, far, far too many years, I never thought I'd be the person to spend 25 years in a band. Um, I have been in many, many, many grassroots venues. And the great thing about grassroots venues is that's where 
new stuff happens, innovation happens. Punk didn't come out of um, arenas. It didn't happen in arenas. Some of it now has ended up in arenas because that's where the money is. Um, grunge didn't come out of arenas. It came out of people's garages and they were angry people who had something to say. Um, the same as the scene in you know, the 90s rave and dance scene, underground clubs, grassroots venues. Um, Manchester, the, Manchester whole, the whole Manchester scene, the Happy Mondays and Spiral Carpets, Jesus Jones, all those people. Small venues, grassroots venues. And this is where... There is space for creativity, angst, um, discussion. And I think there is a parallel between um, the, the outlets for, for those same creative needs with the smaller grassroots organizations. You talked about Brewed, um, you know, FE Research. These are people who are passionate about it and passionate enough to actually do something about it and form a movement and it's where movements come about i think that change happens and that's why you now you, you can't you can't switch on the radio without listening to some music that's heavily influenced whether it be by punk or by jazz or by you know 90s electronica or whatever it might be and it's the same when you listen to the big platform edgy speakers they're entirely influenced by that by movements that started off in grassroots places mm. so i think it's enormously important and i think it should be supported but i don't think it should be messed with mm. i think people should just be allowed to do it and get on with it uh, and it's when policymakers start saying oh brewhead's a good thing you know let's chuck a couple of million quid at it and that's it it becomes commercialized it becomes you know and 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 it, and it's not what it was, but look wonderfully and beautifully, another grassroots thing will spring up behind it out of the anger. So, you know, and, and I'm picking on Brewhead because it's the first one there, because I'm not saying that's what's happening there at all. But that, that's my thinking on it. So, yeah, people should be able to get together and get, get angry and have discussion and passion because that's where good things come from. Yeah. Okay. You can't see my board, but it's got about 10 campaigns and things that... Um... I'm working on at the moment. Yeah. It's nothing to do with work, but they're on my work notice board. So good. Um, <laughs> um, good. Do you feel like a punk? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> good. Sorry, um, you're you're asking the questions, not me. Come. <laughs> I think um, I was just thinking the word that Lou and Kay would use is territorialized, isn't it? And that we we've had some uh, movement from organisations who've tried to territorialize FE research meet. So yeah. it's exactly. Yeah, I mean, it's. I mean, I'll use the. I mean, I, I'm not biting the hand that feeds me here. But if you look at um, the, the the there used to be fantastic venues. I mean, they still are good venues. But you know, the bigger venues, your two thousand capacity venues, using a music analogy again. And now you can't go to one without it being called the O2 Academy. And uh, they're all owned and run by O2. So a great big organisation saw what was happening in these smaller organisations, loved it, and bought them. Or sponsored them all, or whatever what the arrangement is, but fundamentally changed them. They all, they all have the same bands going around the same circuit, doing the same thing. And I think that's that's territorializing a movement uh, in the same way that um, you're experiencing that with with what you're doing. Mm. Resist it at all costs. <laughs> oh, yeah. it's, 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 yeah, it's quite easy to resist. Uh, right. <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> I am going to ask you a question for a friend here. We won't say who the friend is. Um, if a lecturer or teacher was thinking about doing a PhD, you know, what's in it for them? Why should they? Why should they bother um, taking up or beginning a PhD program? Um, that's a really good question. There's lots of ways to answer that. Um, for the fame, glamour, money, um, you know, clearly that's the distinct advantage. Uh, <laughs> no, okay, I'll be serious. Um, I think the only... For me, it was about needing to know stuff that I wasn't able to be taught because it couldn't be taught because the area I was in was quite specific and I just wanted to find some stuff out, you know? I wanted to know what had happened to me, why, why X meant Y and why I then wanted to go on and do something else and what was the impact of that. Um, so uh, for me, it was also the challenge. Um, I failed my A-levels. Uh, I got an E, N and a D. Um, I'd got some motor vehicle qualifications um, and, and I had been subject to 
one or two sort of snidey remarks within a, a friend's circle, if we could say. Um, it's like, oh, yeah, you, you probably wouldn't understand this conversation being a mechanic. And I thought, right, <laughs> give me five years. And um, yeah, so there was an element there of proving a point as well. But the, that's not the question. So why do it? Why do it? So for, for the learning. Uh, it is a, an incredibly difficult, incredibly personal um, challenge, that, but is also um, very liberating in terms of you know, how you change as a person. I can honestly say, you know, hand on heart, that I, I, I was changed to the point where my politics changed, my thinking changed, my view of the world changed, my opinions changed, not all of them related to the subject matter of focusing on you know, studying FE. Um, so there's that aspect of it. It is life-changing in terms of perspectives and, and, and whatever. Um, there are you know, some career opportunities where I'd be lying if I didn't say that getting my doctorate opened up um, some doors. You know, I, I, I made some relationships with the wonderful people I worked with in Stirling University before I went to work there. Um, and then when a job came up, um, it required a doctorate and I, I was within you know, six weeks of finishing um, and I was you know, able to, to secure that job and, and I've always wanted to be able to go and work in a university so there are um, distinct whether it's right or wrong I don't know but there are distinct opportunities doors open open there um, why else would you want to do it um, yeah I think that's probably about it really for me I mean other people might have other reasons but um, okay yeah. Well, uh, you know, I am quite attracted to the floppy hat, to be honest. <laughs> well, this is, yeah. I mean, okay, okay. No, let's, let's go there. Um, so graduation day in Bangor. Bangor University has, a, for PhD graduates, an, an all red uh, ensemble with a nice floppy hat uh, where everyone else is wearing black. And you do feel kind of special, that, you know, walking around with your, with your red garb on and at graduation ceremonies in Stirling where I, I go twice a year, everyone else is wearing black and gray and there's me in bright red. So it's always the topic of conversation. So yeah, the natty costume. There you go. Yeah. Um, uh, actually, to Lou again, she, she says it's the best 12 grand she's ever spent. 12 grand. You know, that's the infection. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, yeah. So I, mean, I, my, I funded my own, uh, I say I funded my own, our, our little family funded it. There's no way I could have been able to do it without, um, without Catherine, um, you know, supporting me as well. Uh, and it is a huge investment, but, you know, I don't know. Do you ever get it back financially? Maybe you do, maybe you don't. But um, I, I think it's worth it. I'd agree with yeah. you. It's worth it. Um, I think everybody's talked about changing at the very core of who they are that we've asked that question to actually yeah so, you know, yeah oh totally totally it's it's yeah i mean also it, it uh, if i can just waffle on a bit longer about it it does it kind of frames a period of your life and i always look back on it as a time of significant change and you're kind of able to navigate many more difficult things in, in what well, I could um, because I had this thing that was constant and I could grab onto it. So, I mean, just to give you an idea from the, from when I started my doctorate to when I finished it, um, my mum and dad died. I moved countries. I changed jobs twice. Um, and, um, I got married in the middle of it. Yeah, I got married and I had a daughter. So, I mean, that's quite a bit of change to go about, but the con consistent thing there for me was always, was always the, the, the study. Um, and I, I found it comforting. Yeah. Others might not. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you mentioned your family there. So we thought to round off, if you're up for it, we're going to play a bit of a game with you. Are okay, you uh, I, I always like a game. Yeah. And what's at stake here is this beautiful book for your daughter, Isla. So if you get oh. no fancies right, she will be getting this book, um, which is about collective nouns. Right now, the reason it's about collective nouns is on the day. That uh, well, were... she'll love that. She will love that. It's got yeah, yeah. on it. On the day that you were originally going to come and join us, you were chatting to a guy on Twitter, and um, he he was. You ended up talking about collective nouns. I don't know whether you even remember this, and it was about um, a fever <laughs> of rays, a fever of rays, and then you were talking about a band. I think. Do you remember that? I mean, oh, that's right. The band Fever Ray. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. So. I mean, I did I'd say to Alistair, I feel like a bit of a stalker. So I, I spotted this. So I, I planned a little game around collective nouns. Okay. Because you know now you're an associate professor. We're thinking you should know <laughs> 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 collective yeah. nouns. There's lots you're of things professors should know. Yeah. 
<laughs> so your challenge is to, let's see if you can get four right. Okay, okay go on then. I might give you clues. I'll tell you the collective noun. You have to name the animal that it applies to. Let's do a couple. Uh, of uh, okay. Yeah? Okay, are you ready? So number one, a parliament yeah. of... Mm. Might need to put some music in. Oh, now when you tell me the answer, I'm going to go, of course it is. It's an owls. Yes, yes. Okay, point, one point. Yeah. Okay, a venom of... Hmm. Uh, I'm immediately drawn to some sort of snake. I'll say cobras. Ah, uh, it's spiders. Mm, who knew? Okay. So not... A venom of spiders. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Right. Number three, a raft of. And they do build rafts. A in... raft? Yeah, they build rafts in water, I think, effectively. Yeah. Mm. A raft of otters. Yes. Yes. Hey. Hey. A caravan of. Oh. Camels. Yes. <laughs> this is going even better than I thought. Uh, an ostentation of professors. <laughs> it would be <laughs> actually peacocks, and finally uh, a cackle of a cackle. Yeah, it's the kind of sound that they make. I think. Uh, um. Sound. Hyenas. Yes. <laughs> 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 well done, well done. So, Did I get four? I think you got one, two, yeah, you got four. Yeah. Hey, yeah, perfect. Okay. You can definitely, you've, you've not let yourself down, you've not let your daughter down, you've not let Scotland down. No, no, absolutely. My adopted home, yeah, they'll be cheering for me. Brilliant. Okay. <laughs> Thank you so much. We will get that uh, gift off to your daughter. That's very um, kind. We're going to round off by saying goodbye now. So thank you so much for spending a bit of time with us. It's been an yeah, thank you. delight. Thank you. Thank you very much, Gary. It's been really insightful and uh, enjoyable to listen to you today. It's uh, been an absolute pleasure. And again, I'm, I'm sorry I didn't make the last one, but there we are. It's, uh, it's lovely to speak to you both. Oh, we got there. Thank you very much. Goodbye. Yeah, thank you. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the FE Research Podcast. You can follow the conversations on Twitter using the hashtag FE Research Podcast. Thanks for listening and hopefully you can join us again soon.